Good morning, Zagreb. Good afternoon, Kuwait City, and good evening, Haiku. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss South Africa's suspicious arms trading and the battle over cultural artifacts. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, Ethan. Thank you for asking. How are you? Doing very well. In, in lieu of our usual banter, though, I have a surprise question for you. Uh, <laughs> if you had to summarize in a sentence why you founded Intrigue, what would it be? I hate surprises, Ethan. You know this. <laughs> uh, but uh, a good question. Um, put me on the spot. I guess one of the reasons I founded Intrigue was, um, you know, because I think the world is changing faster than it has in a long time. Um, and I didn't see that there was much out there by way of media and, and kind of freely accessible content to help folks understand exactly how the world is changing, how it seems to kind of be moving away from this US-led world order that we, we've grown to know um, uh, into one where plenty of countries around the world are powerful and are challenging the US-led world order. Okay. And, w- and good what, enough answer? Yeah, that's a good answer. And I think that actually is going <laughs> to help me out a lot here. The, the next question, what countries are you thinking of uh, that are growing in power and challenging the U.S. world order? Uh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, China is um, obviously the, the big one that comes to mind, but I know we're not speaking about that today. Um, obviously, we've got Russia lately, um, but there's also this collection of countries that are increasingly serving as kind of other poles of power. You know, India, which is the, the, the world's largest country by population now, uh, Brazil, which is Latin America's largest economy, um, and Turkey, which had a, a very important election yesterday. Um, but there's also South Africa, which I think potentially is the country you want me to mention. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a, yes, you've fallen into my trap. Also, on the Turkey point, uh, they did have a very important election this past weekend, and we will do a deep dive on that uh, on Friday. Uh, but yes, South Africa is what we're talking about today. So, John, what's the story here? Okay, well, let's start with just saying that South Africa is obviously a really important country, and it probably doesn't get quite enough coverage. Uh, you know, it's not quite on the same level as, say, Brazil or India in terms of, of global power, but it is the sixth most populous country in Africa and the continent's second largest economy. Um, and depending on who you ask, it probably has one of the strongest militaries on the continent as well. So there's lots of good reasons that the big boppers of, of global politics, you know, the US, China, et cetera, um, why they're interested in South Africa. There's, there's a lot of competition go- uh, for influence going on there. Um, but the news that we're kind of talking about here is that on Friday, um, it came out uh, that South Africa had provided weapons and ammunition to Russia during the course of the war um, late last year. Okay, and so how do we know this news? Well, it's kind of weird because it was actually revealed by the U.S. ambassador to South Africa. Uh, kind of a curious move. I mean, ambassadors are kind of supposed to advocate and represent their own country's interests, not to break news, right? <laughs> um, but uh, they're also supposed to play nice with the host country, and, and this goes against South Africa's interests, I would say. Um, but in this case, the U.S. ambassador obviously seemed to think that there was no choice but to, to share this information into public. Um, the story goes, according to the ambassador, that a Russian vessel docked near a South African naval base outside of Cape Town uh, last December and took on a bunch of military hardware. Interestingly, uh, South African officials don't deny the charge. Um, the president said that the matter was you know, being looked into, but I think the South African government is mostly just really upset that this information has become public. 
Uh, the president's spokesman said shortly after the ambassador's announcement that the two countries had agreed to let the investigation run its course before releasing any findings. Uh, you know, the fact is, though, I, I just find it implausible that the US ambassador wouldn't have done this without permission from, you know, someone back in DC. So perhaps we can conclude that the US is kind of fed up with how long this investigation was taking. I was not the person that gave him that permission for the for the record. <laughs> uh, South Africa, though, why, why support Russia? I mean, South Africa has a pretty deep, if not a bit troubled ties with with Europe. Yeah, the the word troubled is doing a lot of work in 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 that sentence there, Ethan. <laughs> but you're you're right. Uh, the troubled relationship is really at the heart of what we're talking about here. You know, South Africa has been governed by a political party called the African National Congress, or the ANC, since the country's first post-apartheid election back in uh, 1994. The ANC was the primary anti-apartheid group during the apartheid years. It was the party of, of Nelson Mandela. Um, and, you know, they mostly engaged in peaceful protests. But there was also a militant wing of the ANC that battled um, the apartheid South African government and the army. Um, and, and the ANC in those days allied itself with the anti-colonial forces and communists uh, during, during the Cold War. So, you know, the ANC during that time built up pretty close relationships with the Soviet Union, which sent, you know, military advisors to help the ANC. Um, and uh, even while the group was listed as a terrorist orga organization by the US and, and the UK, there are historic roots. Um, and, you know, they, they, they come forward to the modern day as well as members of the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa grouping of countries. Um, you know, I, I think as a result of all of those complex politics, South Africa hasn't condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it also has made clear that it's not necessarily taking Russia's side, too. This news story would suggest otherwise, though. Yeah, if true, yeah, it would. Uh, and, and plus, South Africa recently held 10 days of naval exercises with Russia and China um, that just so happened to correspond with the one-year anniversary of Russia's, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that was a pretty clear and, and shocking message, right, to the West. Um, but, you know, I don't think that's to say that South Africa is, in, as, is abandoning the West or changing sides. Not, not at all. I think South Africa trades more with the U.S., and the EU then with Russia by, you know, a, a huge margin. Um, and, you know, they're not going to give that up. There are also obviously cultural ties, given that South Africa is a fairly robust democracy. Um, but I think the message that the country has repeatedly sent during the course of, of the war, of the Russia-Ukraine war, is that it refuses to see the world in that kind of choose sides binary way that maybe some Western leaders do. What options do Western leaders have to respond to South Africa's behavior? Well, they could, they could lean on the tried and true, you know, course of whacking sanctions on South Africa. If it turns out they provided weapons to Russia or they could cut off some trade. And, you know, I think both of those might happen, could well happen. Uh, but I suspect Western countries won't want to go overboard on that. You know, like I said, South Africa is, is an extremely important country in Africa. It's big, it's wealthy, it's got formidable armed forces. Um, and even those three things kind of don't do justice to just how influential South Africa is. The ANC, for example, is the actual oldest liberation movement in Africa. And I think it's widely kind of celebrated as such. So, so basically, if the US and its allies push too hard against South Africa, they might risk losing influence across the entire continent. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's a good summary. Uh, I think I think maybe the final thing to note here is that when we've talked about multipolarity, you know, it's a bit of a jargony word, I know, but when we've talked about it, this is a really good example of what we're talking about. The idea that we'll see more and more of these countries, these middle kind of power countries, play all sides of every issue to maximize their interests on a case-by-case -case basis rather than, you know, hewing along more ideological or alliance-based lines that they might have in the past. 
It just means I think that the world will be a little bit less predictable because everyone will be doing what's best for them, you know, on each case. Today's show is sponsored by Flavier. Flavier helps you curate your home bar with the classic, the crafty, and the rare gem spirits that match your personal taste. You can sample and train your palate with themed tasting sets, which are guaranteed to help you find your new favorites. Flavier is the best way to experience the spirit of exploration. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. John, for this next story, I think we're going further back in time than we've ever gone. Yeah, doing a, a little time travel today here, Ethan, uh, all the way back to the 5th century BCE, uh, or around the year 438 BCE to be precise, uh, when the ancient Athenians completed the Parthenon Temple and dedicated it to the goddess Athena. Oh, pull up your loincloth, John. Good lord. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, Ethan. <laughs> but, okay, but, but more seriously, if you've ever seen photos of the Parthenon, you, you kind of see that its roof, like its columns and some of its or- ornamentation, seem to have vanished. Um, Now, the first reason for that vanishing is that uh, during the siege of Athens in 1687, the Venetian army fired a mortar round into the Parthenon, uh, where the Ottoman Turks, who controlled Greece at the time, uh, were storing gunpowder. It was literally a powder keg and it went kaboom. Uh, The second reason uh, the the, the top of the Parthenon temple seems to have vanished is because um, for about a decade at the beginning of the 19th century, a British nobleman named Thomas Bruce, or the 7th Earl of Elgin, enlisted a group of British agents to strip the Parthenon of some of its most treasured artifacts, including... The Elgin Marbles. Interesting. Was that was that legal? An act of an act of banditry? I mean, how did he do this? Well, it's been a big question for for about two centuries now. Um, but before I answer your specific question, I should note that just so none of our listeners make the same mistake I did a few years ago by assuming the Elgin Marbles were a precious set of marbles, you know, like the the game your parents might have played in the schoolyard. They are not the Elgin Marbles, um, which is actually a name they've been known f- by in the Anglosphere. Um, there are a series of sculptures made of marble, uh, but I think it's actually more politically correct these days to refer to them as the Parthenon sculptures. Um, but anyway, according to Lord Elgin, he he consistently sought and received permission from the local authorities at the time to remove these sculptures, which he then ultimately sold onto the British government for around you know, thirty-five thousand um, pounds, and which the British government placed in the newly minted British Museum in London. I don't think either of us have been to the Parthenon, Ethan, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've both been to the British Museum, and I think it's safe to say that the marbles, sculptures, uh, are probably the centerpiece of the centerpiece of the whole place, really. Yeah. They've, I mean, they've got a massive room dedicated to them, they're, and they're incredibly cool, I, I have to say, which leads me to suspect that the Greeks aren't too thrilled about their current place of residence. Well, you deduced that correctly, Detective Plotkin, because you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, f- first of all, there, there's some... Uh, controversy about whether the Ottomans actually gave Lord Elgin permission to remove the sculptures at all. Um, But second of all, the Greeks say that they weren't even the Ottomans to give away, right? Um, And the Greeks have repeatedly asked the British Museum to return them since um, Greece gained independence in 1821. They've asked in 1835, 1890, again in 1983. um, And they finally submitted a return request to UNESCO, which said in 2021 that the UK had an obligation to actually return the sculptures. So, you know, since that time, the governments have been negotiating about returning them, but without much luck. 
Uh, but on Thursday, Greece's Prime Minister said the two sides were moving towards a shared custody, a 50-50 split of the sculptures. John, it's not, it's not just Greece, though. I mean, the British Museum is just chock full of artifacts from all over the world. Yeah, and it's not actually just the British Museum either. Um, you know, there are museums all over Europe that display priceless cultural pieces that their, their armies seized from their former colonies. Uh, for the Europeans, and you know, especially the British, um, they say these artifacts have global significance and that the world, whole world benefits from them being kind of accessible in one place. Um, the countries from which they were taken, uh, as you might suspect, don't agree. Uh, and increasingly, I think they are successfully pressuring uh, the Western, you know, former colonial powers to return them. You know, Germany returned some bronze sculptures to Nigeria last year. Uh, the US returned some sculptures to Peru as well. Um, and I think the big point here is that, yes, times and attitudes are changing and it's become less acceptable for these former colonial powers to justify their continued possession of these these types of cultural artifacts. John, I love art as much as you do. I mean, actually, I don't know how much you love art. I like, I like art. I like <laughs> yeah. art. My mom is an art historian and I was forced to learn to love art. That's very different. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Uh, we're not a history podcast, though. What, what's the global political angle here? I'm glad you asked. And I, and I think... The, the, the geopolitical angle is that we can observe that as power balances have kind of changed over the 20th and 21st centuries, these kinds of issues can actually get in the way of good bilateral relationships. Um, you know, and for the West, it's it probably seems pretty stupid to have bad relations with emerging powers like Nigeria, for example, over retaining these kinds of cultural artifacts that weren't theirs to begin with. Um, so yes, I think the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon sculptures, um, this issue is worth paying attention to, but I think it's actually more important to pay attention to how Western governments respond to these requests by other countries, because if they reject those requests, as they have done in the past, um, and, and this kind of links back to our first story, if they reject these requests, it creates this space for other powers like China or Russia or what have you to try and build influence in those former colonies. You pieced it together so nicely there at the end, John. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Liechtenstein's Prime Minister Daniel Riesch announced last week that Bitcoin will soon be accepted as payment for certain government services. Riesch said his country, the world's sixth smallest, would immediately convert those payments into Swiss francs since Bitcoin is still too volatile. Papua New Guinea's Foreign Minister Justin Kachenko announced plans to resign on Friday after facing public backlash over the size of his country's delegation at King Charles's coronation last weekend. Kachenko called the trip's critics primitive animals. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, if you're like me, you've probably spent many a sleepless night wondering how you'd survive alone on a desert island. But the story of one Australian woman makes me wonder if getting stranded isn't so bad after all. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see how she managed. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday. Wednesday.